0: Good morning, everyone. Isn't it a good morning? I'm going to give you a few minutes to unfreeze, to kind of thaw out before you can say good morning to me. (laughs) Uh, My name is Eric, and I'm just so grateful that you're in the room. We want to say a welcome to you. We also want to say a welcome to anyone that's joining us live online right now. Uh, Grateful for you, as well as a hello to anyone who is watching or listening a little bit later on in the week. And particularly a special welcome to any guests that we have today with us. We have prayed for you, whether you're here or online, and we really want this really to be a low-pressure environment for you, just to kind of relax and uh, take it all in. Uh, So we've developed a few avenues to serve you, answer any questions that may arise this morning. Uh, In fact, the next few minutes are primarily for you, our guests. So one way that we hope to serve you is by connecting with you. Uh, And in the 21st century, connecting with you means sharing information. (laughs) Uh, When I say that phrase, you might think, sharing information, I think that's kind of dangerous, right? Uh, But I promise that it is going to be okay. Um, We want to follow up with you. We want to get feedback from you and and just figure out ways that we can serve you and bless you. Uh, Anybody not just guests can update their info or be added to the email list, and there are two ways to do so, first of which is by a hard copy. You can fill out this info card in the pocket of the chair in front of you. And if you do fill that out, please put that in the offering box in the back on your way out. But the second way to do that, if you're not a paper person, uh, is electronically. Uh, You can fill out uh, an electronic info card uh, on the Next Steps page of our website or by using the... U uh, Version Bible app. And the instructions on how to use that app are right up on the screen right now. The app is super useful uh, for today uh, during our gathering time. Uh, you can follow along. You can take notes on there. Uh, you can even give if you want to on there. And uh, one of the coolest things that you can do on there is that you can make Centerway Church your church on the Bible app. And if you do that, uh, you'll get um, messages from time to time, notifications about Bible reading plans, that we're doing and things like that. Uh, so, uh, lots of cool things to do on that app if you haven't downloaded that. Now, I already mentioned giving through the app, and of course, we do not uh, expect our guests to give in any way. But if you attend regularly and you prefer not to use that app to give, you can use the envelope in front of you and place that in the Centerway Offering box, or uh, you can go to the Give tab of our website. And all of those things are. are for sure safe. Uh, Last week we began a new series. It was really incredible. It's exciting. It's called Built to Be. And in case you missed it last week, we're continuing our journey in Nehemiah that we began in the the fall and uh, paused for our Advent series. So last week, we picked right back up in chapter eight. And if you didn't get one of those scripture journals, they are still available in the back. You can definitely grab one of those, and they are free for the taking. Um, If you uh, grab one now, and if you're joining us online and you want one of those, if you... uh, send us an email, uh, we will definitely send you one of those as well. We have resources for this series. They're always so incredible. Uh, You can connect and engage throughout the week. We have wallpapers for your phone and computers. We have Spotify playlists, social media channels, all of that good stuff there. We also have Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals that you can subscribe on our website uh, to, uh, or use the info card to subscribe to those. And One of the things that we are passionate about is taking next steps in your faith. So you can visit the next steps area in the back of the room, or you can check out our Next Steps website. There are so many ways to learn to follow Jesus, and the beautiful thing is that nobody can say, hey, I've arrived, I'm there, right? Uh, I've done it all, I've checked the box. So there's always a next step, no matter how long you've been uh, exploring Jesus or following Him. Uh, In fact, there are two next steps that I really want to point out this morning, the first of which is that we're having a water baptism two weeks from today, on January 28th. If you want to go public with your faith and you've never been baptized in water, that could be a great next step for you. Uh, second, there's a clarity workshop on February 4th. That's three weeks from today. If stewardship is a good next step for you, you can learn more uh, about what that entails and complete a questionnaire. Again, you can visit the Next Steps area in the back at the end of our gathering or visit the Next Steps page of our website anytime. And you can also check out the calendar page. And I, I promise we're almost done with these uh, kind of announcement type things here. Uh, there's a lot of upcoming events and activities. And speaking of the calendar, we do want to highlight the fact that tomorrow we honor the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., One of the things that I just learned this morning is that it's the only federal holiday that's also a national day of service. I think that's really cool. You know, service is embedded in the DNA of Centerway Church, and as much as we serve uh, in so many capacities, King encouraged service uh, for far more than a momentary change, uh, but to leverage working for justice to reflect a spiritual reality. There was a spiritual reality that drove his desire to see justice worked out uh, in his streets and in the, and in the world. Uh, the cool thing is that his I have a dream speech. King references four scriptures, uh, but my favorite is Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, he's, he quoted verses four and five. He said, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked paths shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. I love that passage because what Isaiah is actually saying in this passage, it references a day when the Lord is going to undo every pain, every heartache, every brokenness that we face today. Uh, And we can celebrate the reality that's going to be our reality by rolling up our sleeves and working to make a difference and reflecting the light of, of Christ in our work. So we celebrate that. And finally, If you have questions, if you have feedback for us, if you have ideas for us, or you need prayer for anything at all, the best way to connect with us is by email. That's connect at centerwaychurch.com. Now, here's what to expect for the rest of our gathering today. Claude is going to be communicating from the Bible, and then after that, we're going to be responding to the word by worshiping through singing. Can we pray together and just believe God that he's going to meet with us and change us as he does? Lord, uh, we are so thankful today that your word says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And God, each and every one of us need freedom in a real and a profound way. God, it might be freedom from uh, addiction. It might be freedom from uh, whatever situation of sin that we're caught up in, Lord. But it also might be freedom uh, from believing a lie that we believe for days, weeks, months, years, a lifetime, Lord God. Would you speak your truth to us today? Today, would you allow our spiritual eyes and ears to be open so that your word comes alive in us today and changes us from the inside out lord be glorified in this time and use us for such a time as this and we pray it in jesus name amen thank you
1: eric good morning everyone Welcome to Centerway, uh, as you've already been welcomed. My name is Claude. My wife, Meredith, and myself are the lead pastors here at Centerway, and uh, excited that you have the opportunity to be with us this morning on this frigid day. Um, We are continuing our series that we just began uh, last week, uh, entitled Built to Be, Built to Be. And today we're navigating the first 31 verses of chapter 9. And so I encourage you to read that um, on your own at some point. If you don't have a scripture journal, as was mentioned, you can grab one. Um, But we're going to navigate through the text by highlighting a couple of those verses this morning. Uh, The title of today's talk is Grounded. So we are built to be grounded. And when we use the word grounded, Grounded, we don't mean that we're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> we mean stable, uh, built to be stable, built to be grounded in something, in a, in a world where it seems like not many things are grounded or stable. Um, we're built to be grounded by the Lord. And so I want to start by uh, by giving you a couple familiar phrases. I assume they're familiar, okay? And they might evoke some memories as uh, from your childhood or maybe uh, previous experience. So some of them may not sound familiar to you at all, but if you've ever been wronged, you've probably heard this phrase, I promise I won't do it again, right? Maybe you've even used that. I promise I won't do that again. And, um, and then they never do, right? It's amazing how that happens, right? That's obviously a joke. Most times when we say, I promise I will never do that again, it's really right before we do that again. Uh, also, we've heard the phrase, if you've ever played outside with friends, you've heard this amazing phrase. It's famous in my life, and it is this, do-over, right? Have you ever heard that? Come on, do-over, do-over. You're like, no, there are no do-overs. Like, come on, man, do-over. Like, no, you lost. Okay. Anyway, How about this? If you've ever played pig or horse, and to be clear, I don't mean if you've ever played with a pig or a horse, I'm making reference to pig and horse, which is a basketball game. So if you've never played those games, you don't know. But if you've ever played pig or horse, you've heard this statement. Wait, that didn't count. (laughs) Wait, that didn't count? Like, yes, it did. (laughs) Like, you threw it. No, 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 it didn't count though. Do over. (laughs) I promise I won't do that again. Anyway, if you've ever beaten someone at something, and maybe it's at pig or horse, you hear this phrase, hang on, best two out of three, right? Have you, ever, have you ever gotten to a place where you just win only to hear the response, best two out of three? Like, oh my goodness, seriously? How many times? Best three out of five. <laughs> all right. So those are the phrases. What do they all have in common? As humans, we all want a second chance that's what it has in common that's what every one of those statements have in common we as human beings want a second chance we want our do over we want to say I'll never do that again we want to say listen best two out of three we want to make those statements of a second chance we want not only a second chance when it comes to games but when it comes to decisions like oh I wish I had that decision over again Some of us want a second chance when it comes to relationships. Let me rephrase that. All of us want a second chance when it comes to some relationships. You see, this idea of second chance, it permeates our society, it permeates every aspect of our lives, whether it's just simply playing a game or interacting with others. We crave a second chance, a do-over. More often than not, just... As humans, Christian or not, and I realize we always have a mix in the room, we just want some type of a second chance. And we all know this. We know it at our core. In fact, I can prove it to you based on the way we communicate second chances. I'll explain. Um, I've been whitewater rafting several times and there was one time that my wife and I went and uh, we were youth pastors at the time. We brought a whole mess of teenagers and so we're getting ready to go down the rapids and uh, before we get our rafts and everything, we're in this kind of barn type area and they're explaining all the rules and one of the things that is most imperative is they say, listen, here's your life jacket. Everybody's got one. Everybody gets a helmet. They're like, listen, do not take these items off. And everyone's like, no, okay, all right, fine. He's like, listen, no, I'm serious. Like, do not take these items off. Your helmet is imperative because it will obviously protect your head and brain if you fall out. And it seemed like almost everyone kind of said, okay, we get that. Like, no one wants to like get knocked out in a river. So everybody seemed to have their helmet clasped and they were committed to that. But there were a lot of people that weren't so keen on the life jacket. And and he said this statement real quick as some people are kind of like, holding on to the life jackets and everything. He said, listen, put your life jackets on. When it comes to the water and you drowning, there are no second chances. It's funny. It's funny how we actually communicate the lack of a second chance as a level of seriousness and almost like a threat of sorts. Like, hey, no second chance. Now, if you've ever had kids or you've ever babysat or anything, like, listen, I'm not going to say it again. That's basically what you're saying. (laughs) There's no second chance. So we know within ourselves that there's an inkling where we want a second chance. We want a do-over so much so that we use that language to let people know this is really the final warning. There's no second chances out there. It's serious. Put your life jackets on. Which leads me to a question I want all of us to consider as we move through the text this morning. And the question is this. Why are we reluctant... To give second chances. Why are we reluctant to give second chances? If we can agree, and I I think we would if we were discussing right now, if we can agree that more often than not we desire a second chance on some level, then why are we reluctant to give those second chances? I want to submit to you that it's because we don't want to be taken advantage of. We don't want to be taken advantage of. We've experienced a hurt. We've experienced a level of vulnerability maybe. And we say, you know what? No. No second chance for you. No more. I'm done. We all know the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah, there was like three of you that knew that. (laughs) No, we all knew it. You're just like, I'm not talking. It's cold outside, Claude. (laughs) Yeah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, I'm not giving you a second chance. I'm not doing it. You fooled me once, we're done. That's it. We don't want to be made to look like a fool. In fact, some of us live our one and only lives by a one-strike-you're-out approach to relationships. Listen, you had your chance. One-strike-you're-out. We're done. No second chances. You see, in many ways, a refusal to give a second chance to others is really about us. It's about us. We think we're protecting ourselves. We think maybe we're saving face, that we're being wise to draw a line. And I'm not saying that there's not an appropriate time to have boundaries or to say, hey, no more. I'm not going to be taken advantage of. But it's interesting how some of us tip that scale to say, no, I don't give any second chances. You burned me, we're done. Like I've said, what's interesting is that we all want a second chance at some point for ourselves. What's even more interesting is that the gospel is about second chances. The essence of the gospel is about the idea that we are awarded as humanity a second chance. You see, what we're really talking about when we're talking about second chances, we're talking about forgiveness forgiveness. In grace. And so people that say, listen, one strike and you're out. I've been hurt. I've been burned too much. What we're really saying is, I will not forgive those who hurt me. I will not award grace to others. I should be awarded grace. (laughs) Because I know my intention. I know what my motives are. And so, of course, I should be awarded grace. But you, (laughs) I know how wicked you are. No grace for you. Oh man, my mind's on a rabbit trail, and if you, get, if you know, you know, if not, whatever, we're moving on. I'm not going to take time to explain that. Trust me, it's funny. This whole topic, this whole topic is what verses 1 through 31 of chapter 9 is all about. In fact, verses 6 through 31 is actually a prayer. It's actually a prayer that's being prayed that's acknowledging that God is, is faithful even when humanity isn't. And so it's a prayer about the acknowledgement that God awards second chances, forgiveness and grace constantly and continually all throughout history. It's a prayer that acknowledges the history of the Israelites and says, listen, we keep messing things up and God continually forgives. And that story continues on even in our lives today. It's interesting that God is faithful, even when humanity isn't, not only towards others, but we're not often forgiving towards ourselves. Listen, I wanna say something that might unsettle you, but it's good news. Here it is, you can change. You can change. Some of us have been told by others that we cannot change that we are who we are, that we're angry, that we're miserable, that we're all the bad things that have been spoken into our lives by people that would probably say that they mean well, or in some cases don't mean well at all. And they've spoken lies into our lives. And so I want to let you know, you can change. You can. God isn't done with you. He's not done with you. There's, there's no throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to walking in relationship with the Lord. God not only loves you, he has a plan for you. And hear this, if you believe that the gospel is true, and I know that there are people that may not be convinced quite yet, and that is fine, but if you are of the group that believes the gospel is true, God can not only change you, but God can change that person. And you know who that person is. And we all have different that persons. <laughs> but it's the person in your life that you're like, I don't think God can change that person. Yes, He can. We, we come to the conclusion so often that God can transform us, that God can do miraculous things, that God is at work, that God is all powerful and we say these things and we worship him and we sing songs of praise and worship and yet we are quick to draw the conclusion but God can't change that person or God can't change me. We don't get to decide that people are hopeless. We simply Don't have the right to decide that people are hopeless while simultaneously claiming that we are followers of Jesus. The two do not go in parallel. To be a follower of Jesus is to believe in the transformative work of the truth of the gospel, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And so to declare from a position of authority that others are hopeless is to not understand the truth of the gospel. God is at work, and you are not hopeless. Neither are they. But here's the catch and the tension that you're sitting there. Because when we think sometimes that people are hopeless or we say, listen, God can't change them, what we're really thinking in the, in the picture of our mind is that this person is sitting there, arms folded and saying, I'm not going to change. And that all of a sudden God's going to come in and force their arms unfold and be like, oh. Why does God always sound a little bit like the Little Mermaid? I'm not sure. But anyway, then all of a sudden angels will sing and, uh, and God will intervene and be like, look, now he's kind. Now she's nice. You know. But that's not what, what Scripture is talking about when we're talking about the changing of a heart. We're responsif- responsible for what we'll permit God to do in us. We bear the responsibility to say, okay, God, your will in my life. Okay, God, change me, transform me. And so what we're really saying is we don't believe or we aren't convinced that the person, maybe ourselves, will see the beauty of the reality of the truth of the gospel and who God is enough to allow ourselves to say, God, will you change me? That's what we're talking about when we're saying hopeless. We're saying, I'm not convinced that that person will have their heart awoken to the truth of the gospel. But God wants us to be stable. God wants us grounded. So that we're not driven right and left, that we're not riding a roller coaster of emotion and pain and hurt, but we're grounded in truth, especially in the storms of life. If people don't change, it's because they don't want God to do a work in them. And so if you're here today and saying, God can't change me, I want to let you know the only thing stopping God intervening in your life is your willingness to surrender. To say, God, your will, not mine. If you want the people in your lives to be changed by the truth of the gospel, allow the gospel to transform you so that you can go into that sphere of influence a different person. Imagine walking in to a place and instead of escalating an argument, you de-escalate it. Imagine walking into an argument that is years old where you don't even recall who's at fault and say, listen, for the sake of the relationship, I apologize for whatever I can own here. I want to continue to walk forward a willingness to reflect who God is and how he has transformed your heart in order to de-escalate and to mend relationships. We can see in today's text this idea that God does a work when the people of God are willing to be transformed by the work of God. Verse 2 of chapter 9 says this, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers." So to give you a little bit of context, if you weren't here with us last week, they've just celebrated the final festival based on, it says it's the 24th day, and the final festival, if you remember from last week, ends the 22nd day of that month. And so they've just completed the final festival of this month, and they are coming off of a fast, and they're reflecting what it is that God has done, and the faithfulness of God, and the people of Israel do two things that seem odd to us. (laughs) One, they separate themselves, according to this verse. They separate themselves from all foreigners. And then secondly, they confess the sins of their fathers. (laughs) That seems odd to us. It seems odd to me. Why would they do such a thing? In our Western culture, we function very much as individuals, with individual identities. In fact, we kind of find pride in that. And uh, so I think something is lost in this text. We need to understand reading this in that as we read this, in ancient Near uh, Eastern culture, in ancient Near Eastern culture, there we go, they had a corporate identity, a corporate identity, which is completely different than the way that we function in our society today. So their identity was rooted and linked to their community and their ancestry. So their ethnicity informed their identity. They were a communal group of people. They did not pride themselves in individuality. They prided themselves in their community identity. So what this means is one person's actions had consequences for their whole community, both good and bad. This also means for the people of Israel to truly reconcile, and this is the linchpin of understanding the text. For the people of Israel to truly reconcile any relationship meant understanding the history of that relationship and taking responsibility for any wrongdoing of their community, both present and past. So What their culture demanded of them is to say, listen, if you want to repair any relationship, not only understand the current hurt, but understand the hurts of the past. That's how reconciliation takes place. And so by confessing the sins of their ancestors, they're taking responsibility for distancing themselves from God. They're standing before God and saying, we see your faithfulness throughout time. And so, therefore, we take responsibility because our forefathers, our community, distanced ourselves from you. Some of us in our individualistic society today need to take responsibility for the fact that we have distanced ourselves from God. Because we want God to intervene on our terms God, change them, God, do a work in them. And so, we have past hurts. We have past pains, we have past offenses of people misrepresenting who God is in some cases or just functioning in really wicked ways and we're saying, God, it's their fault, I'm not in relationship with you. Now, take some responsibility. Take some responsibility for the fact that you made a decision to distance yourself from God and that you gave the people that caused the hurt even more authority by giving them permission to influence you, to decide to distance yourself from God. That's on you. That's on us. It's not just you. It's, it's us. We do that as humans. And so some of us have to take responsibility for distancing ourselves from God. And if we go on, there, there's that one portion about their ancestors, and then there's the other part about separating themselves. They separated themselves from foreigners, not because they were racist or because they were antisocial, but rather they're avoiding activity that violated God's law. They're realizing something very powerful. They're acknowledging that the influence of the idolatry of others, in other words, the influence of how other people assigned worship to other things, the influence of the idolatry of others would confuse their identity. So they are coming to grips with the reality that as they expose themselves to foreign gods, to foreign influences, they're actually allowing the influence of idolatry to infiltrate their own identity. I want to challenge you to consider that it is possible in the environments that we are in that we have allowed the concerns, the worries, the influences, excuse me, the influences of this world to infiltrate our identity, to infiltrate who it is that God says that we are. Followers of Jesus are to be grounded in their identity as children of God. That's our identity, children of God. So that we can influence the spheres that we are in. So that we can live on mission. That is the purpose. That we would be grounded enough to bring hope to the hopeless. That we would be grounded enough in the truth of the gospel to be carriers of joy, of truth, of people that influence people for, with the love of God. But, if we aren't grounded, then we risk being influenced. It wouldn't hurt any of us to begin this new year separating ourselves, taking responsibility for our situation before God, and praying that he changes us. As we start a new year, as we begin 2024, it it wouldn't be harmful at all to to find a a place of refuge, a couple of hours, an hour or so, maybe just pause that binging of the next Netflix series (laughs) And just find a little quiet. And separate ourselves from the, the worries and the cares of the world. And take responsibility for our situation before God. And pray that he changes us. You see, all too often, in Christian circles or in church circles, we've twisted this concept to believe that once we become followers of Jesus, that we need to, we need to run away from all the wrongs. We need to like, isolate ourselves because the big bad world is going to make us do things we don't want to do. I'm not talking about being weak-minded. I'm talking about acknowledging where you are in your spiritual maturity. And saying, am I still risking being influenced? Or am I grounded enough to be an influencer? And that's a decision for you to make as you navigate your spiritual journey. If you're in a position where you are still being influenced, then I challenge you to isolate yourselves and grow in the knowledge of who God is. And we have discipleship opportunities and we have ways in which you can engage to continue to understand and grow in your faith so that you can live on mission and be an influencer in every sphere of life that God sends you. Verse 6 begins a prayer which follows the biblical story from Genesis all the way through to Kings, actually. It reveals God's patience and deep love for humanity, even though at every turn it also records humanity's rebellion and the struggle with sin. God continues to forgive. He remains faithful. And it's perfectly displayed through a portion of their prayer in verses 16 through 17. And so I want to read verses 16 through 17 with you. It says, but they, and this is still part of their prayer, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffed neck, stiffed, sorry, and stiffened their neck. <laughs> Basically, they were bullheaded and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. This is recording a portion of the Israelite story where... Where the people that have been set free miraculously, and there's all these examples of how God is actually part of this in profound ways. And they literally are in the wilderness in vote to return to slavery rather than remain faithful to God. It's like it's mind-boggling. It's almost it's almost like someone. That has seen the faithfulness of God in their life. All the days of their life. Only to at some point. Shake their fist at God and say I'm not even sure you're real. Because you're not doing things the way I want to do them. Not that any of us are guilty of that. You see verses 16 through 17 reveals. Not only an understanding of their sin. But also an understanding of. Of the character of God. You see, an understanding of our sin and the character of God is what grounds us. That's it. If you want to know how to be grounded in the gospel, it's an understanding of our sin condition as well as the character of God. That is what grounds us. You see, because if it's just our sin, if it's just the depravity of humanity, then we'll be miserable. And we will conclude that we are hopeless. And at best, on our very best day, we'll become legalistic. Or we'll say, listen, follow the rules. Just follow the rules. My goodness, we are so afraid. I grew up in that tension of legalism, of saying, listen, how do I just avoid hell? How do I just make sure that I do nothing wrong? And that that can torment us. And that's not how God intended that we live. So if we just understand our sin, we'll be miserable. But if we just understand the character of God, if we only understand and declare that God is a God of love and God is a God of mercy as much as he is, if that's the only thing that we understand, then we can be guilty of antinomianism. Antinomianism is a church SAT word (laughs) that I will explain. It basically means cheap grace. It means we will take advantage of the grace that God has awarded us. We literally cheapen the cross by saying, I can live my life however I want. Why? Because God is love, and he's going to forgive me. He's going to intervene, and so therefore I can be as wicked as I want or as kind as I want. And at our best, we'll be philanthropic in order to make ourselves feel good. We'll be guilty of of a pride. Say, well, I'm better than others. I mean, I'm a good person. So, I mean, those other people, my goodness, they're wicked. God, I get you. I just wish they did. But don't worry. God is a God of love. It's an extreme. And so we can be guilty of extremes in Christendom. We can all be guilty of this. We're guilty of, of this idea that either we have to be legalistic or that we can just be awarded cheap grace. You see... If we function that way, we live as though there are no consequences or we fear the consequences. You can see the danger of both extremes. In our individualistic society, we tend to defend and minimize our own actions. It's just the nature. But listen, like the Israelites, we cannot reconcile our relationship with God unless we grasp the depth of our rebellion and our depravity in light of his grace it's both it's an acknowledgement of the depravity of our lives while simultaneously understanding the grace that God awards someone else said I'm not sure who it was the recognition of our sin is the entry point to the gospel I have it written in one of my notes and I didn't write who wrote it I think it's from a commentary somewhere The recognition of our sin is the entry point to the gospel. So, we're whitewater rafting. And we get down to the water because one of the things we have to do is carry our raft to the shore. And so we carry our rafts to the shore and we place them in. And uh, exactly what we expect to happen is happening nobody's putting on their vests. And those that did put them on to make the guy feel good has now taken them off as they're carrying the raft, acting as if it's only to carry the raft down, and we promise we'll put them back on. (laughs) And so we get to the raft, and some of the people are throwing their jackets in the the raft, and the guy down there's like, "Um, hey, don't forget to put your life jackets on. They're like, okay, yeah, we're going to put them on when we we head down the river. And he's like, "Uh, no, you're going to put them on now or you're not getting in the boat. Like, okay. I'm like, this is awesome. Because there's two types of people, really, in the world. There's people that are rule followers, and there are people that aren't, just for their own entertainment. And uh, the people that are rule followers are, like, horrified by those people, yeah. You know? And uh, then there's people like me that just like to watch. <laughs> so I'm like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and so, you know, there's people that are like, you know, like, they said to do this. I carried it down with the vest on, you know? And there's people there that's like, I'll put the vest on if this dude makes me, but the minute I'm down the river, it's coming off. And so he says, listen, it's the rules. If you don't put the vest on, I have the authority to not let you in the boat. Put it on. So they do. It's interesting. This group of people that don't want to put on their vests, they were not changed by the threat, there are no second chances. Huh? Right? Interesting. This this threat, this acknowledgement, this awareness, there are no second chances. They're like, hmm, that's moving. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and take that off. And so they put on these vests to appease this guy pretty clearly. Some of them even snapped just the top one. And he says something that I think has some direct application. He says, listen, there are some of you that are listening to me just because I told you it's the rules but it's important for everyone to understand something. If you've never been on the white whitewater rapids, there's a current that happens beneath the surface. The current will wash like this, and you might think that you're a tremendously strong swinger, swimmer and you may be, in fact, you may even be a lifeguard. But what you may not know is that without the necessary buoyancy, when you get driven to the bottom of the rapids, you will not come up immediately, no matter how hard you are swimming, the rapids are thousands of pounds of pressure and it will keep you cycling. You will come up eventually. It'll be about 100 yards down the river and you'll be drowned by then. So the reason I'm having you wear the vest is because you need the buoyancy to drive you to the surface so that we can get to you before you drown. All of a sudden you hear click, click, zip, zip, click, click, click. Why? Why? You see, we need to understand the problem before we take action. In fact, we need to realize that we don't possess the ability to save ourselves before we consider an alternative. And so the people that are down there that are simply listening and obeying, they're of the legalistic persuasion. And say, listen, it's the rules. It's the law. I'm going to do it. Why? Because he said. And the other people are saying, listen, don't put your vest on. He's just trying to ruin your fun. (laughs) Not that this has any spiritual implications at all. (laughs) He's just trying to ruin your fun. Listen, you're a strong swimmer. You'll be fine. I've never worn a life preserver. You're going to be just fine. Until they're confronted with the reality that they actually have no concept of what's at stake. They don't fully understand the problem. They don't understand the depth of the problem. And when they're confronted with the awareness of the depth of the problem and their inability to save themselves, it's only at that point that they acknowledge maybe they need to do something. Click, zip, click. The recognition of our sin is the entry point to the gospel. And so for those of us that will say, hey, there is no problem. There's no problem. It's because we don't understand the depth of the problem. And it's because we don't understand, for those that do understand the depth of the problem, that we can never save ourselves apart from a savior that would step into time. And we can't appreciate grace without understanding our sin and its destructive consequences it's only when we can truly see the character of God that he would love us so much that we can realize how deeply loved we really are. It's both and. That's what grounds us. And so we read on in verse 31, as the section ends, verse 31 says, Nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. It's acknowledging what God has done, who God is. And we have the benefit of history. We have the benefit of time to realize that this was just pointing forward to a problem that they could not solve in and of themselves. And that Jesus himself, the son of God, would step into time and would live the sinless life that we could not. And that by his death and resurrection, we can be children of God. He would reconcile our relationship with God. And now we have a decision to make as to whether or not we want to reconcile that relationship, whether or not we want our identity to be child of God, that we would want to be grounded in the midst of the storms and the worries of the world, that we would understand with such clarity the depth of the depravity of our lives while simultaneously understanding the grace and love that God has for us and say it's only through the person and work of Jesus that I can be who it is that God has called me to be. And then we can be carriers of hope and joy in every sphere of influence. And we can be influencers to people that so desperately want it. They're so broken and unloved and marginalized. We would be carriers of hope and reconciliation because we ourselves have been forgiven. So we end every week asking a question of ourselves, and declaring that the text requires something of us, and this week is no different. And so, what I want to ask you this morning is to consider this question, how will knowing God's character shape my identity? How will knowing God's character shape my identity? Now, I mentioned... That it's both understanding our depravity as well as understanding the character of God. But I think if we can be honest with ourselves, we understand our own depravity. We understand that even on our best days, we are filled with pride. That we have somehow overcome something. And if you're at a place where you're like, no, I don't think I have fully understood the depravity of my life. Then I encourage you to go on that journey as well. But if you're at a place where you realize the brokenness of your own life and your inability to save yourself, then how will knowing God's character shape your identity? I want to welcome you to, to bow your heads, if you would, and, and contemplate that question. And as you contemplate that question, there may be some of you that are in this space that have never surrendered your life to the Lord. And maybe it's because you've distanced yourself because of other people's uh, misrepresentation of him or you have experienced something of pain and hurt and so it's severed that relationship or I don't know the reason, but for some reason you have distanced yourself from the Lord. I want to give you opportunity to reconcile, to come into relationship with God because of the person and work of Jesus. And so if that's you out there in the quietness of your mind, right now, you can ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You can acknowledge that he died for your sins. You can say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Come and be Lord and leader of my life. It doesn't have to be repeated exactly like that, but an acknowledgement of your sin, an acknowledgement of his sacrifice, and then asking him to be the Lord and leader of your life begins a relationship with the Lord. And so this morning, if you're praying that prayer in the quietness of your mind in this space, I wanna welcome you to come back to the next steps area. There are a lot of people that come back there to talk to me about different things. You won't be singled out, but I'd love to talk to you about the next steps so it's not just an emotional decision or a momentary decision. If you're watching live online right now, You can click request prayer if you've prayed that prayer for the first time and you'll go into a private chat with one of our pastors that will talk to you about the next steps. If you're watching or listening later on, you can always reach out via connect at centerwaychurch.com or through our next steps section of our website. We'd love to talk to you about what it is that God's doing in your life and how we can come alongside you. For everyone in this room that... that have prayed that prayer in the past or even today, I want to challenge you, what does it look like to allow God's character to shape your identity? For some of you, it means researching and better understanding the character of God. And so maybe that's your action today. It's to just investigate who is God. What is his character? How does that transform me? For some of us, it means taking action on What I kind of challenged in the beginning is taking out, carving out a block of time and maybe taking some responsibility for the things that you've done in your life. And I'm, I can't say this enough. I'm not talking about situations and instances of abuse. I'm not talking about making yourself vulnerable to abusive people. Please do not misunderstand that. I'm talking about healthy relationships where you have distanced yourself simply out of some type of an offense that either you or they cannot get over. And taking some responsibility for what you own in that hurt. And maybe it's with God himself. Maybe you just, you have anger towards God because of a a time that you thought there should have been an intervention where where God should have intervened and, and you have resentment, you have anger and unresolved things. And I want to challenge you, carve out that time, reconcile that relationship, take responsibility, understand the character of God. And allow his grace to wash over you. For others of us still, if you've been following the Lord for a long time and, and you understand what I'm talking about as far as being grounded. You understand the depravity of your life and you function within that grace and mercy. Then I want to challenge you. You don't outpace the text. There's action here. And the action is to be missional with the truth that you understand. And so we cannot be puffed up. Paul talks about being puffed up in our knowledge. No, what is it that you will do with that which you know? How will you be a carrier of hope and joy into the spheres of influence that God has placed you strategically? Your time is not done. God is not done with you. So what does it look like to leverage all that you are? To live on mission? To speak the character of God over the brokenness of other people? To bring joy and hope into hopeless situations. To be a person that speaks up for the marginalized, not not because you want to defend people, but because you understand the depth of marginalization as a result of of sin in our world and the brokenness of creation, and that you have been strategically placed to be a redemptive part of that, and that God is the healer. And that that person is precious. That those people are precious. That they are made in the image of God. And so therefore, you will stand up. You will speak hope and joy. You will bridge the gap for those that are pushed aside. Not because you're kind, but because you understand the gospel. And it compels you. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And we ask that we would... Understand your grace. That we would understand truly the depth of the problem and our inability to save ourselves and acknowledge the grace that you make available. That we are so incredibly loved. Because of that and so much more, we worship you now. And we raise our hands in surrender and maybe as a declaration of our openness for you to change us, Lord. Father, we pray that our worship would be a sweet sound to your ear. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.
2: Just offer our worship to God. We do that together. i yeah.
1: you live or how you function or how you behave, but because you are his creation. He knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb and he loves you so we can leave this place loved and that should transform our every day. I want to challenge you as you go throughout this week to live on mission and to remember also in prayer. We have about 20 of our teenagers that are headed to a retreat this weekend, and uh, we're just, uh, this weekend coming, and we're believing God's going to uh, just meet them in a powerful way. And so if they come to mind throughout this week, just keep them in prayer. Uh, we're excited uh, about what they're going to do, and that they're going to have a blast too. So let's just close in prayer, and then you can be free to go or hang out a little while if you'd like. Heavenly Father, we come before you fully aware of our brokenness, but also fully aware of your grace and love for us in spite of it all. And so we leave this place on mission, transformed by the truth of your gospel. Lord, we want to be your hands and feet. We want to leverage our time, our talent, our treasure for your glory and your honor, all that we are for you, Lord. We're so grateful that you're God not only believing in second chances, but third and fourth and fifth and a God, you continue to extend mercy and grace. And so we pray that you would transform us and that you would be with our students as they go on this retreat, that you would anoint the speaker and the worship team and all that is prepared for them, God, that they would travel safely there and back and that they would have an amazing encounter with you. Lord, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to do life together in community and yet be known by you individually. Protect us and bring us back safely next week. In your name we pray. Everyone said... Amen, amen. If you want prayer for anything, Eric will be up here. I'll be at the next steps area. God bless you as you go. Feel free to hang out and crush all that coffee because it's hot outside. I mean, cold outside. (laughs) The coffee's hot. God bless you.